Well, if you all have your Bibles, now that you're comfortably sitting, (coughs) I would have you stand for the word and turn to Exodus chapter 4, and I am going to be reading verses 2 through 4. I've had a great time um, Bible study with my good friend back there, Joe, and uh, we have had just an excellent time fellowshipping and working Bible study into that. And we are in the midst of Exodus, and so I I kind of thank him for this lesson tonight. Um, As I prepared for my teaching, I I kind of go through a lot of things, and I, I dug into something that I thought was really quite astounding, and I thought I'd share that with you. So Exodus chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, it says, So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground. And it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. I think there's a a pretty cool lesson in this particular passage, and um, so I want to speak to you tonight from the title of Staffs and Snakes. Staffs and Snakes. So if you would pray with me. God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the people that are in here tonight, God, and we ask that this word would go forth and it would change and transform us. God, let us pull something from it that uh, God will change us to be more like you. So bless this time that we are together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the, um, the setting of our scripture that we read is at the burning bush. And um, Moses is there because God has a very important assignment for him. It's taken 80 years to get Moses to this very place. And it's here that Moses discovers the purpose that was in the mind of God from the moment he was born. So... As I always say, context is important. And um, so how did Moses get to this point? Um, From the time of the close of the chapter, uh, of the last chapter of Genesis to the beginning of the book of Exodus, we have about 350 or 400 years, okay? Um, The Bible presents us essentially with a pair of bookends, with the volumes in between those bookends being non-existent or blank. doesn't really say a lot about what happened in that time period. The first bookend on your worksheet is Genesis 46 and 3, where God tells Jacob in Genesis 46 and 3, he says, So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. And that one bookend stands alone 
until the next one, which occurs shortly after the opening verses in the book of Exodus. It's actually Exodus 1 and 7, and that's on your worksheet too. And that says, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Verse 7 that we just read sets the stage for God's upcoming battle with Pharaoh through Moses. The first two centuries that the Israelites spend in Egypt have been quite prosperous. All indications are that they lived comfortably and um, peacefully. And they had been allotted this land by Pharaoh through Joseph uh, back in Genesis. And it was intended to be a permanent territory perfectly suitable to their shepherd lifestyle in the land of Goshen. And just before Joseph arrives in Egypt, the, what is known as the Hyksos rulers are the ones that are overseeing Egypt at this time. And it's interesting, I did not know this, I thought, I thought it was interesting, that these rulers actually came from Western Asia. And so they traveled all the way over to Egypt. They were not Egyptians. And they were foreigners, and yet many of the texts that you read in uh, some of the history says that some of these Hyksos rulers were considered pharaohs. And so they ruled. They were very pleasant to the Hebrews that were there. They got along really well. But again, the Hyksos were not Egyptians. And um, the native Egyptians that lived in the land detested them detested the Hebrews being there, detested the Hicksu rulers of ruling at that time. So eventually, they were overthrown. There was a, a, a military leader in the southern part of Egypt that made his way up to where Goshen was and Ramses and Python and all the cities, and he just, he overran it. He kicked the Hicksu rulers out, and you got your first ruler, um, which was Amos the first, and he would usher in 500 years of Egyptian dynasty that would be very prosperous and show great growth. And it's within this 500-year period that we see the change from the Hebrew children being peaceful and plentiful and prosperous in the land of Goshen to now they are taken under as slave labor at this point. And so Exodus 1 and 14 tells us that the Egyptians made life incredibly difficult for the Hebrew children. It says, and they made their lives bitter and with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. And in chapter 3, we see God putting his plan in motion to free the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery through a man named Moses. Now, you all know the story, so I'm not going to go through the whole story of Moses and what he did there. But after 80 years, 40 of which he spent in the, as a shepherd in the land of Midian, God calls Moses to lead the Hebrew people out of Egypt. And he tells Moses that he's heard the cries of the children in Egypt. Amen? Aren't you glad God hears our cries? Right? Uh, Psalm 34 and 17 says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. So God begins to unveil his plan to Moses in verse 10. He says, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
He calls Moses to be his instrument of deliverance. Moses is chosen by God to accomplish God's purposes. And what we will find here is a pattern that will go all through Scripture of how God chooses someone and how we generally respond to that divine plan that he has for us. Number one on your worksheet, God approaches the one he has chosen, and it is God that initiates the contact. In this case, it's the face-to-face meeting at the burning bush. God is the one that calls, amen? He's the one that does the choosing, right? Number two, the one chosen on your worksheet is either reluctant or outright refuses to call at first. And we see that in Moses. He's very reluctant about doing this mission that God has called him to. And interestingly, it's Moses' lack of confidence or inadequacy that draws God to him. Moses questions his ability to accomplish the purpose of God for his life, right? On your worksheet, that makes Moses a perfect candidate for the job, right? If we think we can do it in our own strength, if we think we can do it, and it's about us, and it's all about us, you're probably not the right person for the job, right? We need to depend on God to get things accomplished according to his purposes. So after God lays out his game plan to Moses, a game plan that entails confronting Pharaoh and demanding the release of the Hebrew children from uh, his tyrannical grip, Moses tries to convince God that he's not the man for the job. Maybe it's because of his past failures, or maybe it's because he had actually come to believe that he will always be a shepherd, a keeper of sheep. Maybe it was that he found contentment here along with his wife and family, but he tries vehemently to tell God, I am not your guy, right? It's like Brother Jim at the altar, and God speaks to him and says, I want you to go to Zimbabwe and, you know, nope, God, you don't have the right person. But God doesn't make mistakes. God knows all the ingredients. God knows what's underneath that you don't even know yet. And that's what's so fascinating about Moses is Moses had all these qualities to accomplish it, but he didn't know it yet. He also knew that he was going to have to depend on God to get it done. Moses 4 and 1 says, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So in response to Moses' objections, the Lord demonstrates his power as a way of reinforcing his faith and his confidence. And what I really want you to see here is that this sign is not just about demonstrating the miracle power of God. It's about God providing Moses with a very practical, real-life demonstration of what it will take to accomplish God's purpose for his life. You see, Moses was right about one thing. He can't do this on his own. There was no way he was going to be able to do this on his own. God's plan is much bigger than Moses' ability. 
sometimes when God calls us, we've got to understand that. You know, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. Well, yeah, you probably can because his purposes are so much bigger. But again, God doesn't make mistakes. He chose you for a reason. Amen? God gives Moses several signs, but it's the first one that has to do with the staff. Remember, Moses at this point in his life is a shepherd. And what do shepherds carry everywhere? They carry a staff. And so I dug this out. And uh, was telling Pastor that this was an old stick, and I did try to carve a bear, a bear head on the top. It doesn't look much like a bear, but I tried. So let's talk about the staff for a second. The staff serves several purposes. It would be used at night to bring the sheep into the fold, right? So Moses would have set it horizontally and held it over the gate, and as the sheep passed under the staff, he would have counted it and making sure that they were all safe and sound for the night. It also served as a, a staff of correction, so it would have a little hook on the top, and so when sheep would get out of line, grab it around the neck and pull it back into the fold, or it might tap it on the side, but it was used to get sheep back into the fold so that they would stay together through the journey of the wilderness. And this is probably what David had in mind when he wrote Psalm 23 and 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou, God, right, art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. God's direction, God's protection, Right, God's everything about God in that valley, that's the protection that he provides. The psalmist tells us that we are the sheep and the Lord is our shepherd. And it is his staff that comforts and protects us in the valley of the shadow of death. He watches over us, he guides us on our way, and he drives away the enemy that would destroy us. And uh, Moses probably used the staff for all those purposes. However, there's at least one more use that he probably used the staff for as a shepherd. And I think that this use is the most relevant one based upon what I want to say tonight. <clears throat> the shepherd used his staff as support. It was something that a shepherd would lean on. Okay? And it was the thing that held him up. And we see this usage mentioned in Hebrews 11 and 21 when referring to Jacob. It says, by faith, when he was dying, blessed both sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Jacob was at the end of his life, weak and frail, and just about to pass from this life to the next. And he leans upon his staff as support as he's giving the blessing to his second-born grandchildren. And when he was too weak to stand on his own, the staff was there to help him to stand. And it's in that moment, as the blessing has passed from one generation to the next, that the Bible says Jacob leaned upon his staff and worshipped the Lord. That's what shepherds do. They lean on their staffs, and it supports them. I might even suggest that as God's having this conversation with Moses, Moses might have been leaning 
on his staff as, as God's having this conversation with him. The staff signifies power, right? There's a spiritual sense of the staff, too, that we're going to see as we move forward through Exodus. It signifies power. It was an extension of the right hand of God. It was an extension of God's power. It was an extension of God's presence. When, when Moses, I'm not going to smote anything here, but... When he would smote the water, right? He'd smote the water in Egypt, and it became blood. When Moses extended the staff over the streams, frogs came up. When Moses, right, smote the dust of the ground, it became lice. When Moses stretched the staff out towards the heavens, there was hail. And when Moses stretched the staff out over the land, locusts came up. And when the rock of Horeb was struck, I won't strike anything with a staff, water came out. There are so many other examples, but the staff was symbolic of the hand of God. It was symbolic of the power of God, the presence of God. The staff itself, there was no power in the staff. That makes sense. You know, it's like lightning bolts were coming out. It was representative. It was a physical manifestation of a spiritual concept. It was a hand, it was the power of God in his hand. And it was shown many, many times. So God tells him to throw the staff onto the ground. I won't do that. And immediately, that which had been his support turns from a staff into a snake. In Hebrew, it's, I should have Aaron come up and help me, it's nahas or nahash. And I'll come back to that in a second. But this transformation, right before the eyes of Moses, must have really taken a moment to register in his mind. What had once been a staff is now a snake. When that fact finally seeped in through the consciousness of Moses, the Bible says that he recoiled in fear. He literally stepped back in fear. In fact, we're told um, in another version that he fled from before it. What had once been his help, his support, his weapon of defense, now became his enemy. And at the very sight of it was enough to cause Moses to retreat in fear. Exodus 4 and 4 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and he caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. The reason I selected this particular passage to teach on is because I believe it's more than just the staff and the snake, the lesson that's in there. I believe God is teaching Moses a very practical lesson and a lesson that we all need to learn. God is reinforcing to Moses that the Lord is his staff. God is reinforcing to Moses that the Lord is his staff. Moses has protested that he cannot do what it is that God has called him to do. And God is letting him know that you're right. You cannot do what I've asked you to do. But I'm your staff, and you need to lean on me. Lean on me. So I have three lessons, and I'm going to unpackage this here, that we can learn from this concept of leaning on God. Lesson number one. Here's the first lesson we learned from this passage. It's on your worksheet. If Moses leaned on God, 
everything would be all right. Moses wasn't qualified to accomplish this mission. His objections were correct. He does stutter. He does have his handicaps. He will struggle by himself to accomplish God's plan and purpose for his life. But listen, as long as he depends on the Lord, as long as the Lord serves as his staff, he'll be okay. God will take care of him. For Jacob, the staff had become necessary because his thigh had been dislocated at Peniel. Remember that? He had the battle, the wrestling match that went all night long, and then God dis dislocated, right, his thigh. Jacob's leaning on, oh, this is good. Jacob's leaning on his staff now symbolized his helpless moment-by-moment -moment dependence on God. Such an important lesson that we need to learn and remember. All through Scripture, we're reminded to lean on and rely on God. Psalm 18 and 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. Psalm 37, 39 through 40. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust him. Isaiah 41 and 13. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not. I will help you. And of course, one of my favorite passages, as well as our bishops, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. You can't do this on your own. This life we live, we can't do it on our own. We think sometimes we can, but we can. We need to lean on God. We need God in our lives. So how do we practice this idea of leaning on the Lord? And I have three points on your worksheet. When in trouble, pray. It's pretty simple. Pray. James 5 and 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing with songs. God is always ready to attend to our cries when we are in trouble. And prayer invites God to help you overcome your struggle and bring restoration into your life. The wisdom to know what to do in, circumstance, in certain circumstances comes when you pray. God hears the cries of the righteous and he delivers them. It's a promise that we can hold on to all our lives. How many times do we run into situations that are so monumental and we think, well, I got to go do this, and I got to go do this, or I'm going to try to do this, or here's my game plan. I'm going to do this. And what God is saying, just stop. Stop. Pray. Pray. I can't tell you the number of times. Well, I probably could, but the number of times that I've had conversations with bishop and pastor about people that have come in with whatever challenges they have. And, and they know they're trying to do it on their own. And what's the first question you ask? What's your prayer life like? 
You hear that a lot at this pulpit. That's because that's critical. That is so important. If you don't have it, you have to. It's the only way. It's that relationship. It's that one-on-one. It's learning to hear his voice. It's learning to get that direction. It's, it's, you have to have that in your life. When you face trouble, stop. Don't try to think of all the different ways you're going to stop. Take it to the Lord. He hears you. He'll, he'll give you an answer. You might have to wait a little bit, but he will give you an answer. Number two, find your strength in the Lord on your worksheet. Isaiah 40 and 31, for those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. During times of distress, find your strength in the Lord because people can only help you up to a certain point, right? They can only see so far, but God sees well beyond that point, right? Well beyond that point. Lean on God. Let him comfort you and care for your needs. God will renew your strength, and you will be able to keep going despite your circumstances. David had to strengthen himself in God when he came back home to Ziglag. And his fellow warriors wanted to stone him. And they had returned home to find their families carried off by the Amalekites. And the men turned against David. And having no one to lean on, David leaned on God, as we, were t- as our, as we are told in 1 Samuel 30 and 6. It says, Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the peoples was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. David found his strength in the Lord. You may not know when your season of hardship will end, but you can trust God to strengthen you as you go through it. Lean on God for the strength. And number three, another way to strengthen leaning on God. Grow your faith by reading the word. Romans 10 and 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. When we face seasons of hardship, we need to grow our faith by reading God's word and getting into his presence. Faith helps us believe that God will come through for us. He promises in his word that he'll stick closer than a brother. Faith will keep you going when everything around you is falling apart. It's like I said last week. You have to have the knowledge, the agreement, and the trust for faith to grow. You may trust God, and you may agree, but you've got to know what you're agreeing with. That's why you're in your word. You've got to be in your word. You have to understand what God's trying to teach you, what, what he, the promises he's made for your life. You have to know those things. Then you can agree. Say, yep, God, I'm all in on that, and I trust that you will be able to do it. You can't do that if you're not in your word. Can't do it. Lesson two. So lesson one is he has his staff, and he's leaning on his staff. Lesson two. The second part of the lesson is that if Moses ever stops leaning on the Lord, if he ever tries to go it alone, 
what had once been a source of strength would be replaced by a terrible adversary. Verse 3 says, and he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. I had mentioned before that in Hebrew, the word serpent is nahas or nahash. Um, Hebrew, um, the Hebrew language will also add consonants to that base word to give it more definition and, and more of a description. It's kind of like saying, um, Pastor, I, 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 Bishop, I like your car. It's pretty generic. Versus, Bishop, I like your Pinto. Or, Bishop, I like your Volkswagen. Or, you know, it, it's more specific. And, and that's what happens when you add certain consonants to base words in Hebrew. And in this particular one, there are three different words for, uh, that are used to describe Nahas or Nahash. And this particular type of snake, this particular word that's used in Hebrew is used a couple other places in Scripture. And the Jewish sages point out two in particular. One is in Genesis 3 and 1. And it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, As God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The other time it's used is in Revelations 20 and 2. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The Jewish rabbis and some of the commentaries that I read teach, because it's very interesting, Moses is a shepherd, and the shepherds are out and about, they get up into the rocks. I don't know if you've ever been. I remember when I was a kid, and we would climb up into the rocks, and we'd, my dad would tell us to get a stick and tap the rocks if they have crevices underneath them because that's usually where the rattlesnakes would sit in the dark places in there, and that would kind of spook them so you could climb the rocks and stuff. I don't know if they had rattlesnakes in Midian, but I'm sure they had snakes. Moses had seen snakes. He's probably seen all kinds of snakes. And yet the Bible says that he recoiled back. It was something unusual about that snake, that serpent. And I, I don't, I'm not here to stretch anything. I, I'm, I'm here to tell you what is taught, that it's quite possible that it had this appearance of an adversary, of evil. Right? Something that would come against him that was scary, and Moses fled backwards. And God is, what God is trying to tell Moses is, is if you try to stand alone, remember the staff is their representative of leaning on God, but if you take the staff and you throw it away, it's suddenly going to change your situation. You're no longer got God by your side, you're now facing an enemy. So it's, it's, it's kind of like, I read a book once by, I think it was John Eldridge, and he would write for books for men, and he would talk that men have temptations, and he would call them itches. They had itches. That could be drinking, could be drugging, 
could be whatever, could be anything. But remember, in Job, I'm bouncing around here, in Job, God had a hedge of protection around Job. And then the devil came and talked to God and said, why don't you just kind of remove that hedge of protection and let me at him? And he said, okay, you can't kill him, but okay. And I think of when you take the staff and you throw it away, what are you actually doing to your hedge? Because in that hedge, there are doors, gates, those itches, and I'm speaking to men and ladies here, those itches have gates, right? There's gates, and that hedge really keeps those gates closed. You're in your word, you're praying, you know, you're praising God, you're at every service, you know, you are living for God. Those gates will probably stay closed. But the minute you forsake God, then the gates get a little crack in them. And I know a lot of guys that have thought that they could walk down Madison, in Madison, down the street with 27 bars and say, I could pass every one of them. I'm a Christian. I'm a... Yeah, it's easy to say that. But one of those bars would draw them in because that gate is cracked. And that enemy is watching you. He has been at this a long time. And he knows what your triggers are. He knows what your itches are. And so he will come and he will attack at that point. I think in this lesson, what God was saying is, is when you throw your staff away, when you no longer lean on me, when you no longer need my power, when you no longer need my presence, then when you try to go at this alone, the enemy's going to come back to you and he's going to attack. And he's going to say, you're a stutterer. What are you doing out here? Why are you going to Pharaoh? He's probably going to kill you. You just need to go back. You know what I mean? It'll be this constant attack. Constant. He's not going to kill Moses. He's just going to torment him. Go back. Go back. Go back. And what God is showing Moses is you need to have that staff at all times. You always have to be leaning on me. Because you're right. You can't do this on your own. You need me. But the minute you throw that staff down, you're open game. It's going to be a hard time accomplishing the purposes of God if God isn't in your life. Does that make sense? <clears throat> I have seen more people fall back who have forsaken God very quickly. When you forsake God, you are fodder for the enemy. You really are. The devil is an opportunist, and he doesn't fight fair. He'll wait until your back is against the wall, and when you are weary and tired, he will attack. And when temptation comes, you will start questioning your faith, and he will attack more. Don't open yourself up to that. You must continually lean on God and walk with him. You have to come in agreement with God. I'm leaning on you, God. I'm not going anywhere. By leaning on him, you agree to walk with him. 
You agreed to walk in his promises. You agreed to walk in his ways. Amos 3 and 3 says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Here's the warning in this verse. If you're going to lean on God and walk with him, you have to be going the same direction as him. The two cannot walk together unless they agree. And I'll let you in on a little secret. God doesn't negotiate. God does not negotiate. If you're going to lean on him and walk with him, you need to be going where he's going. He's not going to walk with you on your little detours. It's not going to happen. He won't make the side trips with you. He's not going to venture off with you while you go chasing after something that is contrary to his will and his plan for your life. If you're going to walk with God, then you have to put everything else in your life under submission to him and his will. And if you're going to lean on him, if you're going to walk with him, he has to come first in everything. Everything else comes in second. If you're going to walk with God, anything in my life that contradicts his purpose and his will for my life has to be abandoned. Anything that is taking me away from him or in a different direction than he's going must die. God and I cannot walk together unless we are in agreement. And that doesn't mean that he has to agree with me. Right? I love when it gets quiet. How many times do we try to convince God? But God, I think this is the right way to go. This is the best thing for me. Bridget and I, we're only going to Paris for two weeks. I'm sure you'll take care of the business and the money will just flow in. And, you know, you know, we come up with some crazy ways to try to convince God that we got a better plan than his. If we don't agree, we have to agree. When you agree with him and you lean on things, good things happen. But when we try to go it alone, we always end up in trouble. When we neglect the staff that supports us, when we find ourselves too busy to pray, too busy to read the word, too busy for days of fasting, too busy to listen to his voice, then the enemy stands in our path and strikes fear in our hearts. That old serpent has us in his gaze, and we are powerless to stop it. Why? On your worksheets, because we have nothing in our hands to defend ourselves. The power of God, the presence of God, the might of God, the hand of God. When we forsake the staff, we now no longer have anything in our hands to defend against the enemy. Moses had nothing in his hands with which to defend himself. The staff was gone. There was nothing left to do but run. But watch this, Exodus 4 and 4. And the Lord said to Moses, put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. Lesson number three. Sometimes you will find yourself in that place where the enemy has the upper hand because you have foolishly abandoned your help. Perhaps you were too confident. Perhaps you thought you could stand on your own. Perhaps you thought that the decision was one that you could make without prayer. Woo. 
Perhaps you thought that decision was one you could make without prayer. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. But in his moment of crisis, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, take it by the tail. You can imagine the type of faith that would have took. That's a little bit of faith. Reach down and grab the serpent by the tail. And here's the point. God is challenging him to pick up what he had just thrown down. To pick up what he had just thrown down. The neglected staff that had been replaced by a serpent. That's exactly what God was telling Moses is to reach for in that moment of crisis. It takes faith to look the enemy in the eyes and reach for the staff that has been neglected. But that is exactly what it takes to overcome the enemy. Anytime we get into trouble, we want to do something. We want to get busy working out the solution. When you want to do something, God says, pray. I can't say that enough. When you want to run, God says, stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. When you've neglected your source of strength, the Lord gently reminds you that he's never abandoned you. All you have to do on your worksheet is pick up the staff again and lean on it. That is the amazing thing about our God. I know a lot of people that have abandoned God in their walk. And God still takes them back. <laughs> How cool is that? Okay, I, I get it. You made a mistake. You, you threw the staff down. You went through some challenges. Pick the staff back up again. Pick it back up again. I'm still with you. I still want to be the right hand in your life. I still want my presence to be. Just pick it up. Pick it up. When Moses touched the serpent, it immediately became a staff again. When it all looks like all hope is lost, and when you tried to stand on your own and made a mess of your life, it's never too late to trust in God and let him become your staff all over again. The secret of overcoming the enemy of your soul lies in simply leaning on the power of God. It's foolishness to your flesh. Your flesh wants to do something else, but the Lord wanted Moses to know, I'm going to fight your battles if you would just lean on me. I'll say this again, this verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Let me close with this. The Hebrew verb in that last passage that I just read uh, translated uh, the word trust. It's translated in the Arabic verb, in, a, in an Arabic verb that means to throw oneself down on one's face. That's what that actually means. <clears throat> or to lie down, spread eagle, in complete reliance. Trust in the Lord. Complete reliance on God. One commentator said it means to do a belly flop on God with all your failures and fears. It is an image of complete and utter reliance on God. It is the image of abandoning all your ways and turning things completely over to God. 
That is exactly what God is teaching us tonight, to put our trust in him. Keep the staff in your hand. Keep it in your hand. Take up your staff. Lean not on your own understanding, but instead throw yourself upon the grace and the mercy of Almighty God. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this word tonight. God, I thank you, God, that you are here with us, God, and that your grace and your mercy, God, is just so awesome. It, I can't, it's, you can't even measure it, God. And how many times do we find ourselves in places where we just want to solve our own problems and, and we go, oh, we got this, God. But then, God, again, in your grace, you're always there waiting for us to come back. God, I pray that tonight that we walk away not throwing the staff down, but leaning on you, reading our word, being in prayer, knowing you, trusting you, coming in agreement with you. God, I ask that you would build our faith as we go forward in the mission that you've called each one of us individually. We pray this all in your mighty name, and the church says, amen. You are dismissed.